Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 13th of February 2023 and this is is episode 288. On today's Mentioned in Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Fraser Skiro about his research into raiding on the Western Front during the Great War. Fraser spoke to me from his home in England. Fraser, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Right. Um... Personally, I've uh, recently retired. I did 30 years in the pharmaceutical industry um, while doing my military history research in parallel. I was often accused of simply posing uh, as a consultant in pharmaceuticals, uh, where in fact I should have been wandering the battlefields. And I, I suspect that was that was probably right. Um, as far as interest in the Great War is concerned, I, I blame my father. He was a, a very keen uh, family historian. And wandering up and down Wharfdale in, in Yorkshire, where the family's from, we, we found a monument uh, in one of the churches, which was to a Captain Geoffrey Skiro uh, of the West Yorks, uh, who had been killed in France in, in 1918. And he was a 22-year-old territorial officer, uh, and at the time, so was I. So there was a sort of interest was peaked at that point. I went off to find out a little bit more about who he was and what he'd done. Uh, and his unit was so obscure that nobody had really written about it. Uh, so it was hard to find out. And as anybody in military history research will tell you, it, it, it should be a class A drug because the moment that you hit one of these questions and you start saying to yourself, oh, I've got to find that out, you're hooked, you're doomed. Um, and so uh, the best part of 40 years later on, um, uh, I'm, I'm still doing it. And they say the Western Front Association is a bit like a cult. You can, you know, you can check out whenever, any time you want, but you can never leave. Yes, you, you can try and get away from it, and then you will pass a Commonwealth War Graves uh, uh, cemetery, or, or something will pop up on a Google search, and that's it. The day is gone. Yes, I know the feeling. Um, hence me doing this podcast. Right, let, let's not get diverted. Let's start with some broad definitions. Now, we're going to talk about raiding. How would you define a raid? And how would this differ from patrolling? Right. Um, the, the definition is quite fuzzy at times because they all get kind of lumped under minor operations as, as far as people at the time were, were concerned. And that takes you from um, recce patrols, fighting patrols, prisoner snatches, up to stuff that's got a whole battalion involved um, with all the supporting arms. I, I think the key is the intent. Um, if you intend to enter the enemy trenches, then it's a raid. Um, and these types of raids are happening almost side by side in, in a period in September 1917. In the same week, you have got an opportunistic attack on a couple of vulnerable machine gun posts by five men. Uh, and you've got a reinforced company raid uh, smashing through the first line and into the second line of the German defences uh, with machine gun support, artillery support. Both of these are described as a raid uh, in, the, in the literature at the time. So it's, it's pretty broad, but I think if, if you're going into their trenches, uh, then they would have classed that as a raid. 
So this brings us, and I think you've touched on this already, what was the purpose of raiding? Why did the BEF carry out such so-called minor operations on the Western Front? Well, there's about half a dozen reasons, um, uh, which we could probably put in, in order of reasonableness. Um, so that the philosophical one always is the offensive is the soul of defence, uh, according to field service regulations. If, if you're not out there doing damage, what, it, what are you there for? Um, and that's fine, but this is a very new form of, of warfare. There's been a bit of raiding on the Northwest um, frontier, etc. Uh, but this idea of um, fixed position warfare with a, a no man's land is, is new, and they've got to think their way through it. And, and the first thing they're concerned about uh, is about gathering information. Um, and that's a very clear rationale. Uh, if you don't know who is opposite and when they're changing, you can't really tell what they're up to. And that, that can be very basic. Um, if, if you've got uh, a Saxon territorial unit on the other side, you're probably going to have a fairly quiet life. If you've got um, regular Prussian infantry, uh, that's going to be really quite uncomfortable. And if suddenly there's lots of Prussian regular infantry around, something is, is going to get very hot. Now, it's sometimes hard to see that as an individual soldier when you're going at no man's land. But if you if you look at, firstly, the consolidated view that higher command at the core level is getting from all of the, uh, the patrols and the raids that are going on, they're actually able really to um, assess the intentions of, of the enemy quite well. And in some of the memoirs, you, you'll get a complete panic because a unit that isn't supposed to be there has suddenly turned up and everybody will have to hop around and there will be more prisoner snatches until they've worked out you know, why that's happening. At a more local level, um, if you look at the interrogations that take place, the, the idea that people are interrogating, give name, rank and serial number, unfortunately, is, is complete rubbish. Um, prisoners are uh, confused, frightened and desperate to please. And in the intelligence reports, you'll get an individual German soldier who will give us three or four A4 sides of information. And that will include um, his unit, the disposition of machine guns and defences in his unit, the units on either side, um, any new equipment they've got, when they were relieved, what their morale's like. It's all there. And these things are fantastically useful. Um, tricky to see when you're crawling around in the mud. Um, but as it makes its way back through intelligence officers, it's, it's very good. Um, probably next in terms of, of reasonableness is training and familiarization. Um, many officers are quite new to it, particularly uh, those who've not risen through the ranks. And through these raids, they're learning how to plan, how to plan multi-arm uh, operations, how to co coordinate with their support, uh, critically, uh, communication between units that are moving around in the dark that can't be seen, that can't be plotted on a map. Uh, the whole business of battlefield management is being worked out often at quite a small scale, you know, maybe with 10 men, which is then building up into platoons, building up into companies. Uh, and these officers start to get really quite good uh, at these very complex operations. And I think that was also legitimate. Um, there is a further philosophy, which is um, impeding and discouraging the enemy, uh, which, which sounds great. Um, now, th this is a natural extension of, uh, of patrolling, um, and it's really part of controlling no man's land. So on the one hand, 
if you are out there uh, fighting in no man's land and you are raiding the frontline trenches, the chances of anybody getting across no man's land to do the same to you are more limited. Um, whether it actually does discourage the enemy, because our own units get raided and doesn't seem to discourage us very much. Um, whether it does discourage the enemy, I, I really can't say at this point, but I have my doubts. Uh, and that kind of starts to lead us into the ones that I think uh, are slightly trickier because there was a belief that certain units were sticky, as they put it. There was a lethargy that came from trench warfare where people would just keep, keep their heads down. And then when a big attack came, those units would not get out of their trenches. Now, there's not very much evidence for that, but it was certainly a, a concern uh, to higher command at the time. And it was felt that uh, getting people out of the trenches and into no man's land would actually at least keep things moving uh, and demonstrate that we weren't just sitting there. Uh, probably finally, the one that gets the worst press is rivalry between the units, um, uh, particularly the senior officers of units uh, at a sort of brigade and above level. If you want to get anywhere at the time, it's very important to be seen as a, as a thruster, as they would put it, or a fire eater. Um, and if your unit doesn't do much patrolling, your reputation is, is not going to be that. So there's, there's one battalion uh, which has um, uh, a, a senior officer from a normal English county regiment. Uh, but the second in command is later the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, who are manic patrollers. And when the CO is there, there's very little patrolling and no raiding at all. Uh, and when the 2IC is in charge, um, they're out every night uh, and raiding all the time. Uh, and it's a, a difference in philosophy uh, between those two units. So uh, it's quite a long answer because they do it for a, a multitude of reasons. Um, and an individual unit can have all of these going on simultaneously. So how does the nature of raiding change over the course of the war? I mean, it, cha it changes massively, um, uh, and it changes in different units at different times. So I, I think going back to Royal Welsh Fusiliers for a moment, you've got Captain Dunn who wrote the War the Infantry knew, um, and there's a point where it transitions in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers from being a few people involved in this to being at major. I'm actually going to read you. I can't put it any better than this. So I'm going to read you what he says. The immemorial notion of a raid is to enter the enemy's line by stealth or surprise, to kill or capture, plunder or destroy, and get away with no fighting or very little. The new notion is a battle in miniature with all the preliminaries and accompaniments magnified, often manyfold. And he's really put his finger on, on how it changes. Um, so the ambition and the sophistication rise and rise and rise. Not in an ordered fashion, but almost battalion by battalion. So your early raids, you've got a couple of dozen men who are going out to um, have a crack at an outpost somewhere. And it may be creep up, throw a few grenades in, um, uh, grab somebody, or if you've killed them, cut their shoulder tabs off uh, and get home as quickly as possible. And you see orders for um, uh, fighting patrols uh, and mini raids. And, and the orders are kill a few of the enemy and obtain an identification. That's it. Um, after that, that's, it's, it's sort of up to you. Um, in the 62nd Division, which I spend most of my time with, it, that, that turning point takes place in, in September 1917. And you've got a raid carried out by the 2nd 6th West Yorks. Uh, it's company strength. Uh, in fact, reinforced company strength because they borrow bits from other places. The aim is to get through two complete defensive lines. 
and they've got every specialist unit involved. Um, so uh, the Lewis gunners have a particular task. The rifle grenadiers have a particular task. Um, uh, infantry and bombers obviously will, will do the actual raid. And they're all located in different places on the map with, you know, they can't see each other. It's all got to be coordinated by lights and, and watches. Um, they've also got a machine gun uh, barrage from the Vickers guns. They've got light and heavy trench mortars doing different things. The 18 pounders are putting a box barrage down. They've got howitzers. Uh, they've got a creeping barrage. Uh, they've also got advanced stretcher positions um, so that they can get forward to take the wounded out. Uh, they've even got a deception plan because they're going to fire random lights from different parts of the line um, and make uh, essentially what they used to be called Chinese attacks, false probes to give the idea that they're actually not where they, they are. I mean, that's on paper the plan for a significant battle. And this is being run by, uh, by two lieutenants, um, 21 years old. Uh, one of them is the son of a, uh, a saddle maker. These are not you know, professional soldiers by any means. Um, and at, at 21, they're running an operation of this sophistication. Um, so that would not have been dreamt of uh, two years earlier. And then by 1918, um, well, there's a, there's a daylight patrol, um, daylight raid rather, uh, by an officer of the a second fifth, who's also 21 years old, um, up near Biers Wood. Um, and he's come up with the idea for this one himself. Uh, and they actually tunnel out of one of their own trenches into a, a German communication trench and then make their way through the old uh, front line there in broad daylight. Uh, they bomb a dugout. Uh, they threaten the next one and 14 prisoners come out, um, along with an array of, array of weaponry. Uh, the other dugouts they find, they throw um, phosphorus grenades and Stokes mortar shells into them um, to destroy them. Uh, and he marches all of these chaps across uh, no man's land without loss, uh, bringing with him his machine guns. Uh, and it, it is a classic, um, it, <laughs> medieval cattle raiders would have recognized this. I've gone onto the enemy's territory. I've destroyed his house, captured his people, and would have driven off any cattle he happened to have uh, if we had a chance. And the array of stuff they brought back is extraordinary. It's not just machine guns, they snatch everything. They, uh, so it's that kind of freebooting. Uh, plus battalion uh, level raids, it, it's, it's completely unrecognisable by the end of the war. Uh, it's just, it's a normal day at the office for the second, first West Yorks doing this kind of thing. And that leads me on to, I, the, I'm going to take these three questions as they all, all are pretty interrelated. Yeah. Firstly, how would you measure success in raiding? Secondly, what factors would lead to success? And finally, does the BEF get better as the war goes on? Right, okay. So let, let's deal with success factors, uh, because, uh, you know, I think it's fashionable to, to sort of, you could look at weapon systems, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, the success factors are really in the preparation. Uh, and that preparation comes at, at two levels. You've got the general preparation and you've got the preparation of the raid itself. So as you study what's, what's going on in a sector over a period when, when, uh, really a brigade is in place. You can't see it at individual battalion levels. Um, but when you've got a brigade and that's, it takes over a new sector, there's actually a sequence of events before you can get anywhere near a raid. And if you don't do this, it's, um, it's not going to work. So the, the first stage essentially is sniping and observation. And you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, of talk about sniping and, and um, 
as the ultimate field craft and, and marksmanship. But in fact, what they're really doing is they're staring at no man's land for very long periods. And they learn and report on all the activity that's going on. Where are the enemy points? Where is the enemy working? Where are the holes in the parapet? What are they seeing? And then to push back enemy snipers and, and outposts so that you've got a little bit of space to work. And you really need to do that before you can patrol much beyond your own wire. Once you've done that, you can then start aggressively patrolling. Uh, but the first stage of that really is only to go to the enemy wire. Once you are then suppressing his patrols in no man's land and he knows he can't leave listening posts or observation posts out, then you can start to, to probe him a little bit uh, and generally pick a, an outpost, preferably not one with a machine gun, uh, and go and give it a nudge. So creep up on it, fire some rifle grenades into it, um, and then sit tight and see what he does. And if the whole of no man's land lights up with flares and machine guns on fixed patterns and a SOS barrage comes down, you know that he's really quite serious about things um, and you probably need to think twice before meddling with him. However, if he doesn't do that, you may then be able to start for looking for likely places where you think you can get in. And when you've got that piece of ground selected and a potential objective, then you can go into raid preparation. Uh, so it could take you several weeks um, and possibly several rotations um, in that sector of the line before you're really comfortable of, uh, of going out. Um, it's also important that last bit where you nudge the outpost, you do that on the night of the relief, because if there's a retaliatory raid, it will then fall on the incoming battalion rather than on you. If you're then up for raid preparation, the key thing is actually personal reconnaissance. So the officers who've been out there on the recce patrols and are getting to know the wire are really the ones uh, that you want to lead the raid. If it's a small raid, it may be a couple of uh, officers and the members of the uh, scout unit uh, within the battalion. Uh, so the intelligence officer uh, has got a dozen or so men uh, who are scouts, snipers, and are, are much better trained uh, than your average line um, infantryman but they're also very valuable men. So if you're going to do something bigger, you're actually going to have to take section leaders. You're going to have to take uh, the Lewis gunners and show them where they're going to be. You're going to need uh, the maps, uh, the, um, the aerial photographs, which are particularly important for this. So you can really show people and they will need to sit in the trench and look at no man's land and understand exactly how they're going to get to where they're, they're supposed to be. Um, You've also got the supporting arms to deal with. So if you're going to use the Vickers guns, you're going to have to talk to the Machine Gun Corps. Uh, if you want a barrage, you're going to have to talk to the artillery. You're going to have to talk to the units on either side, because if you start lighting up no man's land and you haven't mentioned it to them, uh, uh, they're really going to be quite miffed. Um, and as you could easily get lost on the way back, uh, they will shoot you uh, as you come into the wire, unless they're very clear that they're supposed to be looking for you. So raid preparation, again, is, is several weeks. Uh, it really does have to be thought through um, if it's going to be done at any scale. And that still doesn't guarantee success. Um, uh, you know, Murphy was an infantryman. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Um, and the number of raids that fail, I mean, some of them fail before you, you even get to no man's, you get to the enemy wire. Uh, you bump into uh, an unexpected German patrol. Um, somebody... Uh, on one particular uh, event, startles a whole bunch of birds that are, roost, that are that are settled in the grass in no man's land. Uh, and suddenly there are a hundred of birds going up and everybody's awake. Um, kit fails. 
there's a raid where they're going to blast through the wire with Bangalore torpedoes and they just don't go off. Uh, and everyone is left hanging around in front of uncut wire, one, wondering quite what to do next. Um, and if they notice you, up go the distress rockets, down comes the barrage, and you're all stuck in no man's land uh, while that takes place. And the casualties can be horrendous. So you can put all the preparation in, in the world in, but this is still a very, very high risk operation, which means you're putting your best men on it, which means you're taking high risks with your best men. So mm, it's a tricky one. Now, okay, so do they get better? And, and, and how would we how would we measure that? So it's often talk about learning curve. So let, let's define our terms. Um, you know, a learning curve is the improvement in performance you get when you do the same thing several times in the same way with the same people. And if you're doing that, you can expect to get better. Um, now, how do, we, how do we get a handle on that? If, if you look at the doctrine and the training to begin with, if you look at infantry training 1914, um, uh, which is a wonderful uh, little book. But as far as patrolling and raiding is concerned, it basically says a few standing patrols should be out to watch the enemy. And it talks a lot about picket lines because the patrolling and raiding aspect was all done by the cavalry because they could roam about and they, they could get back quickly. So it's, it's not until March 1916 where you've got um, SS-107, which is Notes on Minor Operations, which, which is an interesting little text. Um, but it's more a sort of... Um, hints and tips uh, document than, than it is a, a doctrine. Uh, it does at least say that minor operations can only be carried out successfully if superiority in patrol work between the lines has been established. So it, it's got the, the start of this sequence of events uh, in it. But it's really 1917 before you start seeing stuff written down that leads you to believe that they're thinking this through. And it, it comes in some very unlikely places. The, uh, the map reading and intelligence training for the Canadian Expeditionary Force has got 12 pages of detailed instructions on the conduct of uh, particularly reconnaissance patrols. Uh, and it's, it's stuck in the middle of their map reading piece. Now, if you took it out and taught it now, there would be very little to change. It's, it's first rate stuff. But it's what, December 1917, uh, SS-195, which is scouting and patrolling, uh, that's really the first time that you're starting to see a, a doctrine for the minor operations. And raiding uh, is distributed by a much more odd means. There's one particular fantastic raid by the Canadians, uh, and it's written up and distributed to all battalions in the army as a, this is how you do it. But they say themselves, the circumstances of each raid are so different that you can't really put a doctrine down for it. You've got the broad principles of, of your, um, your specialist units and your supporting arms, but they, they would say you, just, you can't write a menu for this. Uh, each one of them is going to be different. Now, do they get better? Well, if, if you look at the resources, so that's the doctrine, look at the resources. As time goes on, it becomes professionalized. You get specialist patrol leaders. The scouts uh, take on a, a huge role in this where they are, uh, the guides for the raids, they are often leading individual uh, uh, raiding groups to the right place. Um, they are uh, a very special group of guys, and this is clearly becoming very important. You've then got raiding officers who are never described as raiding officers, but when you look at the officers who are leading the raids, the same names keep cropping up. Uh, and these guys are doing it all the time. 
So clearly they are specializing. Uh, there don't, and the Germans, of course, have stormtroopers. Uh, so they have specialist raiding units. Uh, uh, the British don't really do that, um, uh, except in the most informal way. And there is continued pressure to raid. So they are doing it over and over again and do seem to, to get better. But it's a vexed question. And it remains there. So in June 1932, there's an inquiry to find out whether the tactical experience of the Great War has actually made its way into field service regulations. So, you know, we're quite some time after the war. Uh, and one area of this is minor operations and raiding. Uh, and they really struggle to, um, to answer the question about how effective raids, minor operations were, uh, because the objectives of all of these different things uh, were essentially subjective. So they could tell if they captured a prisoner or if they obtained some information. But often they couldn't tell whether a raid inflicted more damage on the enemy uh, than it did on us, particularly if it went wrong. And you've got some really quite um, prestigious uh, senior officers uh, giving evidence to, to this inquiry and basically saying, well, I have absolutely no idea because we don't know how much damage we did. Um, and uh, I think it's um, uh, General Jack, uh, West York's, he said, you know, we were told that all of this raiding was going to discourage the enemy and break his morale. Uh, and he said, I've seen absolutely no evidence of that. So in, in 32, General Jack, who, you know, did know his stuff, and, and you can read his memoirs, basically dismissed uh, the idea that raiding had any significant effect on the enemy. So do you, what impact do you think raiding had on the enemy? And maybe is there anything you want to add about its impact on maybe the forces that took part in raids? Y yes, because um, <laughs> this is really quite important, and I really don't like the answer, um, uh, because I think the effect of our raids on the Germans was minimal. Um, now, how would I, I back that up? Um, well, let's, first off, we've got to look at the German records. So that huge raid that the 2nd 6th uh, did uh, with all of its supporting arms, etc., And they did, they penetrated two lines. They took lots of prisoners. They killed several people. Well, they raided the 71st Reserve Infantry Regiment uh, just outside Rheinkorn. Uh, and the history of that details uh, that a raid took place, um, but it was most unfortunate because they had a, a, a party of fairly new recruits there who they had put out into no man's land to um, uh, tidy up the frontline trench. And these guys were basically routed. They uh, state the number of prisoners that were lost and the number of killed, which exactly matched the British records. Um, actually, in killed, it's still within uh, one or two. Uh, and then they move on. And that's that. We were raided. We lost some soldiers. It, it's very, very ma uh, matter of fact. Um, where you've got a... Um, a slightly more effusive author of the battalion history. So if, if we go and look at the 84th Reserve Infantry Regiment, uh, and that's that they also raided in September uh, 1917. Uh, their history, what they stress is the heroic response of the defenders. Uh, and they, they name the defenders uh, and they praise them for, for driving off a party of 50 raiders. Now, I have the names of the men on that raid. There were five of them. Uh, so uh, the enemy has been multiplied by a factor of, uh, of 10. Uh, and then there are, there are pen portraits 
of the couple of soldiers who were killed uh, during that raid. Um, and they are, again, very effusive. You know, this man um, laid down his life for the fatherland, etc. It doesn't represent a, a breaking of morale at all. In fact, according to our records, the five men withdrew in good order, uh, which is um, clearly true with no casualties. According to the German records, uh, 50 raiders uh, were driven, successfully driven off after heroic defense. Doesn't sound like breaking morale to me. Um, and, you know, the Germans have their own successes. Uh, in, in early 1917, they raid uh, outpost positions of, of 62nd Division, um, uh, capture 10 prisoners, kill a bunch of people. And actually, 62nd is so chaotic at that point, it takes them two days to find out that they've lost the post. Um, that raid that Commode did in, uh, in Bies Wood, um, where he captured 14 prisoners, uh, two days before that, uh, the Germans had been out, uh, had infiltrated through our outposts and come across a, a working party under a Lieutenant Pepper. Um, and because it was a working party, Lieutenant Pepper had um, taken them out without their arms. They were digging trenches and they rounded them up and quietly brought them back through our outposts um, uh, and made them all prisoner. And they got home without a fight. So they are um, raiding backwards and forwards. Um, and I don't think it's, it's breaking anybody's morale. Um, I think what it is actually doing uh, is long term, uh, it is eroding. Um, it's eroding faith in what we're doing this for. So to some extent, our own raiding is, is eroding our own morale. Now, if, if you take a, a raid, and again, it's 84th uh, Reserve Infantry Regiment. And they put a raid in on, on the British lines uh, in 1917. Uh, which goes horribly wrong. It's beautifully planned. It's got pioneers, it's got stormtroopers, it's got cover parties, uh, it's got a barrage to break the wire. Um, uh, tactically, it's first class. Strategically, it's rubbish because they're coming in because they believe that there are mine shafts there. They believe they're being undermined and they, they bring the pioneers to destroy the mine shafts, but there aren't any mine shafts because we're not actually mining there. Um, but a nasty little fight develops in the, in the trenches. Um, and two officers are killed, one on either side. So a Captain Turner uh, of the second six is, is killed. Um, uh, he was he formerly worked for a, a pump company in Kendall. He's an ex-territorial, not a professional soldier. Uh, and on the German side, uh, Lieutenant Richard Krag, um, he's a divinity student from Mecklenburg, uh, uh, is killed. Now you could take the write-ups in the family history, in the battalion histories, and you could swap them over. Both sides are writing about what superb leaders. Uh, Lieutenant Craig, he'd only recently been promoted. It was his first raid. It's about what a promising young man he was, how brave he was. Uh, Captain Turner, it's about how hard he fought in the defense. Uh, these are both clearly very impressive men who were mourned by their own people. Interestingly, although they didn't know Lieutenant Craig's name, the battalion records of the, of the second six make a note of how hard, hard he personally fought and describe him as a very gallant fellow. Now, the word gallant is enormously loaded in First World War military English. That is about the highest praise that you can give to an officer. So the men who were surrounding this probably started to say, is this really worth it? Was it worth losing Lieutenant Craig to attack a bunch of mine shafts that turned out not to be there? So whose morale is actually being eroded? Which I, I think 
leads to your subsequent question about, you know, what's the impact on our own people of doing the, the raiding? Um, and we, we're going to have to divide that up. We're going to have to divide it between the professional raiders who are in the scout and patrol units and the ordinary soldiers. And we have to divide it between the impact at the time and the impact in, in later years. So your scouts and your intelligence officers, your scouting officers, they're all volunteers. Um, if you need to detail officers and men uh, to do patrolling and, to, and the difficult parts of raiding, there may well be something wrong with your battalion uh, because this is, is best done by volunteers. Now, there are additional raiding party members, but these guys are getting extra privileges. They're getting reduced duties. Uh, they get a, a measure of autonomy. They also get extra measures of rum. Uh, and as far as I could tell, a certain um, latitude in the weaponry and equipment they're allowed to carry, uh, verging on banditry, actually, in some of their cases. Um, so these are people who are doing this all the time. They're, they're competitive members of an elite. They don't write much in the way of, of memoirs. Um, it's hard to get into their thinking. For the ordinary soldier that's called upon to do this, they're not like that. They're just really glad when it's over. They go out, they do the job, they come back. If you're not one of the professionals, and, and the bigger the raid, the chances are um, that you're not, uh, then it is probably quite a big event for you, but one where you're going to go out, do your job, and get back. Uh, <clears throat> so they don't look forward to this sort of thing. They're just, they're just glad when it's over. Um, now... It also varies for, for time. So where you get officers writing to other officers, and so of course it's not censored, um, uh, you can see that a, a good successful raid is really seen as proof of, of professional competence. There is competition uh, between companies. Um, there is competition between individuals. Uh, and certainly after particularly commodes raids, you get correspondence in the, in the battalion saying he's been decorated, he's absolutely fantastic. He's the, um, one of his soldiers described him as uh, the best officer who ever set foot in France. Um, you really do pump up the status and the status of, of your unit by, by being good at this. Um, and even immediately after the war, uh, th this is a rather obscure text. Um, but it's, it's available on, online. And it's Major McLean, um, Canadian uh, intelligence officer, Major McLean, uh, Victoria Cross, Military Cross, Military Medal. Uh, he had had every role in the scouting, sniping and intelligence um, from being a private soldier uh, through to becoming a, an intelligence officer. And in 1919, uh, he writes a book and it's called Scouting Thrills. Now, it's aimed at the Boy Scout movement uh, in Canada. Uh, and it is, uh, anybody old enough to have watched Ripping Yarns, uh, this would have made a fantastic Ripping Yarn. It is Boy's own paper. It is full of uh, Jolly Japes in, in No Man's Land, uh, where uh, by dint of superior intelligence and, and warcraft, um, the Canadians managed to get one over on the Bosch. Uh, and it's all written uh, as though it had an absolutely wonderful time. Uh, it is all a big game. And you read it now and you're, you're sort of vaguely horrified by this. But actually, that was the way that it was being put about at the time. They won the 
or in no man's land. They demonstrated the superiority over the enemy, and there's no reason to be anything but proud of it. Uh, and if a few fun and amusing things happened on the way, well, jolly good. So as time goes on, of course, that attitude um, becomes much less fashionable. Uh, and by the time you've got uh, Sassou uh, writing, um, his nickname was Mad Jack, and he was not above uh, running down people's trenches on his own, throwing bombs into them. But when he writes later on, uh, patrolling starts to become, raiding starts to become, as he puts it, uh, an invitation to suicide. Now, I've seen him quoted as saying that. I've never actually found it in any of his work, but he is broadly quoted as, as having said that. Um, and you can see his disillusion coming. Almost none of the patrolling and raiding officers who I have studied left a memoir or made a mention of what they had done uh, in their papers. It, that um, very personal fighting. This isn't about launching barrages at people eight miles away. Most frontline soldiers very rarely see a German. These guys are uh, quite clearly, according to records, they are killing with the revolver, uh, the bayonet and the knife. Uh, and that's very close quarter fighting indeed. And they are seeing individual people fall and they are taking stuff from those bodies for identification. There is absolutely no doubt in a raid that you have killed someone. And the further you get from the war, the less acceptable all that behavior was. So they start to go very quiet. And by the time they're old men, of course, they're very regretful. So you've got to take everything that they write later with that effect of, of time. But at the time, they were proud of what they were doing. They competed with each other. They volunteered to do it. Uh, and I do wonder whether, whether as, you know, these are 20, 21-year-old guys. They should have been competing with each other on the cricket field um, and trying to impress the girls. Actually, they're out in no man's land, and the only way they can show their personal excellence is to be good at this stuff. And I think that's why a lot of them did it. So do you think in the round view, given our retrospective 2020 perspective on this, was raiding worth the casualties? Um, well, <laughs> to go back to very first principles, the Duke of Wellington was strongly against it. Um, uh, he said wars are not won by slitting some poor fellow's throat. Um, if we look at the objectives, uh, often when some of this was, was going on, there weren't the resources for big attacks. So you needed to do something aggressive. Otherwise, uh, the whole thing was going to peter out essentially into, into almost phony war. Uh, so the little raids, the prisoner snatches to get information, those I think were clearly worth it. The training and development aspect for our own officers and NCOs, I think was probably worth it. Because when I look at um, whole periods of, of patrolling and raiding, they take very, very few casualties. If you take the, the second six battalion, only one officer is killed on a raid in the entire war. So it's, it's not as dangerous as, as you think it is, unless you get one of these uh, total cock-ups, in which case you're going to lose an awful lot of men very, very quickly. Um, and I think there, the, the effects of a successful raid are quite transitory. You get a good write-up, you get some leave, decorations and rum are handed out, but two weeks later, you've kind of forgotten about it. The effects of a bad raid, uh, where it goes wrong and you lose a lot of men, that, that's huge. That lasts a long time. So you, you've got to be willing to risk 
um, taking a terrible kicking yourself for actually some fairly marginal gains. Now, the Germans understood this, and they had a philosophy which was, I won't do it in German because my accent is actually even worse than my French accent, uh, but it translates as don't tickle, kick. So they will do a raid where they've got a really solid reason for doing it because something is threatening. Uh, they'll do prisoner snatches around the time of a relief when they just want to check that the intelligence that they're getting is, uh, is good. But a lot of the time they won't come out. They don't reckon it's worth it. When they do do it, they will use specialist trained volunteer infantry to do it. Um, and those people who know what risk they're taking, they will not risk uh, the morale of, uh, of a line infantry regiment uh, if they can use the, the specialists. Um, there's also a danger, of course, of people game playing this, of um, essentially saying that they are going to patrol aggressively or raid and, and actually not really putting heart and soul into it. Uh, and then again, you, if people are starting to game the system, you're, you're destroying your own morale. Uh, it's also very hard work. I mean, the, the best book written on this, actually, from an infantry platoon commander's uh, point of view, uh, is, is written about a raid in 1943. Uh, and it's uh, uh, an officer called um, uh, Fred, uh, it's, I think it's pronounced Magdalene. It's called Patrol. It's a story of a raid. Um, and you can give that, as I have, to officers who were um, in Afghanistan, and they will they will just nod uh, because it is all the same experience. And it describes the uh, the preparation, it describes the, the nervousness and the tension of being responsible for leading something sophisticated in the dark. There's a point where they're supposed to have reached the objective, and uh, it's it's a road that he needs to find, and he can't find it. And it describes his rising terror and his desire to burst into tears because he can't find the road. And then his boot hits the tarmac of the road, at which point he also wishes to burst into tears, but for completely different reasons. So it's, it's, the, uh, it's a great work on the emotional side of being a raid commander. Um, and it's, it's a very short uh, work and it's, it's really well worth the read. And finally, Fraser, where can people learn more about your work? Um, well, let's, let's take that in, in, in two bits. There's because um, there's this whole area um, uh, that, that I have, have been studying. And if, if people are interested in this, there's comparatively little literature because uh, the experiences of, of raiding and the records about it are all scattered so hugely. So a battalion may do a raid and there's you know five lines in the in the war diary about it, but actually the full raid report could be in the brigade or the divisional record. The interrogation of the prisoners could be in the intelligence summaries in the division. It's all scattered. Uh, and it's very hard to get an overview. But there is a book called On the Dangerous Edge uh, by Kenneth Radley. It's British and Canadian trench raiding on the Western Front. Big book, absolutely enormous work of, uh, of scholarship and filled with detail. Um, illustrates just how difficult it is to write this stuff. But it is very, very good at taking you through the development and showing you the different approaches. And I think that the conclusions are very good. Um, uh, I do recommend Major McLean's Scouting Thrills. Just Google that. It's free. Um, it's not to be missed. Um, uh, there, is a there are a lot of manuals at the time uh, which are now being reprinted. Naval military press are very good at this. There's um, uh, Scouting by Night, uh, Scout Sniping. Uh, by Periscope, which I suspect is not his real name. Um, uh, so lots of, and obviously SS-195, 
lots of manuals and contemporary publications to, uh, to look at. Um, and always Tony Ashworth, Live and Let Live System, great on patrolling and reading. Um, from my perspective, if you haven't tired of my voice already, uh, there's a number of, of Western Front Association lectures on, on YouTube. But what I do recommend, if you really want to get to grips with this, is you know, looking at the, the areas or the battalions that, that you are familiar with, follow down those raid reports and then go and walk the ground. Uh, we all do it for, for big battles, but um, I've studied a, a number of these patrols in, in detail. Uh, and uh, on the 1st of September 2017, I had the privilege of, of guiding the family of Lieutenant Hanley Hutchinson, uh, who was killed on the 1st of September 1970. Uh, and we walked all over uh, the uh, area where he was killed, literally in his, his footsteps. Um, uh, and uh, we were able to send stuff to the families of the two other soldiers who were killed that day. Patrolling gives you and raiding gives you a real personal connection where you've got detailed information about a very small piece of ground and some named people who fought there. And as a way of connecting uh, with this controversial aspect of the Great War, uh, it's, uh, it can be really quite a moving experience. Fraser, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time... <laughs>